Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Award-winning author Brad Watson is a native of Mississippi who now teaches at the University of Wyoming. In his new novel, Miss Jane, drawing on the story of his own great aunt, Watson explores the life of Miss Jane Chisholm, born in rural early 20th century Mississippi with a genital birth defect that would stand in the way of the central quote-unquote uses for a woman in that time and place, namely sex and marriage. From the highly erotic world of nature around her to the hard tactile labor of farm life, from the country doctor who befriends Jane to the boy who loved but was forced to leave her, the world of Miss Jane Chisholm is anything but barren. Free to satisfy only herself, she mesmerizes those around her, exerting an unearthly fascination that lives beyond her still. Brad Watson's author of two collections of stories in the novel The Heaven of Mercury, which was a finalist for the 2002 National Book Award. His fiction has been published in the New Yorker, Granta, Ecotone, Electric Literature, and Idaho Review, among other publications. teaches, as I said, at University of Wyoming in Laramie. And uh, he is uh, coming to Utah. He's on his uh, book tour for Miss Jane, and uh, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop uh, tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, free and open to the public. Brad Watson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, so uh, I want to jump right in with uh, the fascinating real-life uh, person, your great uh, aunt. You you write that you that you only saw her once, maybe not very many times. I only once. I was uh, probably only six or seven years old. Um, we used to go to my grandmother's house. She lived on a farm in the country, <clears throat> and um, all the kids would, would play outside while the parents, you know, our parents. Uh, stayed inside and talked to my grandmother and uh, we were out there one day and this car pulled up and a man helped a very old frail woman dressed all in black uh, with a veil on and everything helped her into the house and someone said well that's Aunt Jane and someone said so something's wrong with her so we didn't know what it was a mystery Um, as uh, she died in 75 uh, in her 80s I came. I was curious about her from that moment on, though. You could almost say that I, I started thinking about writing this book long before I ever thought about being a writer. And I would ask my mom about her. She said, "Well, she was incontinent her entire life. She couldn't. She never married. Never had a boyfriend, or all that." Uh, then I saw a picture going through a box of photos one day of a a, a pretty young woman. A snapshot, looking back over her shoulder at the camera in what looked like a flirtatious way, and I said, who's that? And my mom said it was Aunt Jane. And I said, well, she looks like she's flirting. And she said, yeah, she was real popular with the boys. I said, really? And she said, yeah, she used to go to the dances in the community up there. I said, how did she manage that? She was incontinent. She had to wear diapers. She... Um, you know, this was a problem. She said, I don't know. I don't really know how she managed it. Um, but it sort of deepened the sense of mystery around her for me. And so I started thinking about her. And uh, at some point I decided I would try to write a novel about her. The difficulty was uh, that we didn't, no one knew really exactly what her condition was. People didn't talk about it back then, and especially country folks. Uh, so I had to do a, uh, quite a bit of urological detective work, and it was really hard to come up with what may have been, must have been, most probably was her condition, and uh, and also find one that, that worked for my great aunt and it would also work for the story in the book. Because I, I realized that it, until I figured out 
must have or most likely was her condition, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine her story. And there really no one remembered much at all about Aunt Jane. Just a few, there were a few anecdotal things. So I ended up having to uh, imagine a lot more than I thought I would. So it, um, it was much more of a creative process than an investigative process. Yeah, finally, after I got past the, uh, the anomaly, it was, it was a sort of I had to imagine someone who wasn't my aunt. Mm-hmm. Whereas I thought I'd be able to, you know, lean on her story a little bit more, use that as more raw material, but there wasn't really that much raw material to work with. Because uh, I, I imagine as, as things were, especially in that you know time, you you didn't talk about it, right? You, uh, Aunt Jane has a problem, and that's you, you don't go much beyond that. That's right. Um, you know, when I asked, there was a kind of a hush about it. They, they wouldn't they wouldn't talk about it. The few people who knew her and then were still alive. Uh, when I started looking into it, they would sort of get that somber look and say, "Well, no, she something was wrong with Aunt Jane. Mm-hmm. We don't know what it was. No, we didn't ask." Um, one my I had a uh, an aunt, my mother's older sister, who was uh, she was a real sort of character, and she was bolder than most of them. So at some point, she uh, when my aunt was in the, was in a nursing home, unlike Jane in the book, she um, she goes up and goes into a nursing home, uh, or she did. And my aunt said, to, "You know, Aunt Jane, what what is wrong with you?" And and uh, she said. I only have one. That's all she said. Hmm. I asked my aunt, one what? She said, I guess she just means one opening. Hmm. Uh, so that was a clue for me. Um, the fact that she lived a long life, uh, it seemed, and, and apparently she was relatively free of all this, this kinds of uh, constant infections, uh, that people with fistulas and those sorts of uh, anomalies will suffer. And uh, she was very, very thin, which wasn't uncommon in that family. My grandfather was, too, her brother. But um, she had a very sort of severely anorexic look about her, and that helped me in terms of trying to imagine how she lived her life, how she managed with her condition and so on. Mm -hmm. And everyone always said that Aunt Jane was a very cheerful, upbeat sort of person, and she, so I knew that she found a way to deal with living with her condition that um, that allowed her to live as, as a, quote, normal a life as possible. And she, she just seems like a very admirable person to me. Mm-hmm. Everyone loved her. She loved all her nieces and nephews. She was much admired in the family and much respected. One reason no one talked about it, as well as, you know, the fact that it was just custom not to. So I, you know, I, I couldn't, I just kept coming back to her until I decided to try to write a book, but it took me quite a while to figure out how to do that. It was quite a, a, a lot of detective work uh, to try to find. You said it was important for you to get in and, and, and write fictionally about her to, to at least come up with a plausible solution to, to what her condition uh, was. Um, so I want to get into that, but uh, just parenthetically, <laughs> I, I guess this really happened. You wrote it on your website. Which, by the way, is uh, WiltonBradWatson.com. Um, uh, you called a Harvard pediatrician, and uh, you 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 had a syndrome that you thought might be it. You're checking with him. He said, "You're from the South, right?" And went on to inquire whether there'd been a habit of inbreeding in your family. That's 
that's yeah, some st- that's some right. stereotyping. Yeah, no kidding. I, yeah, I was I was teaching up there on a five-year fellowship at the time and living briefly in one of the student houses, um, which they have in, in both dorms. And they throw parties for the students every now and then in the, in the master's house, to call it. And I went in there, and this master was a pediatrician. I thought he might help me. It was just early, very early stages of trying to do the research, uh, trying to figure out if I could get going. So I asked him, uh, you know, what do you think this condition could be? Could you start, at least start me in, a, in some direction? And he paused, and that's when he said that. You're from Mississippi, right? <laughs> is, there, uh, is there any history of incest in your family? <laughs> I, said, I said, well, no, not that I know of. <laughs> and that was the end, end of conversation. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. Um, uh, I joked also, I don't know if it's the same thing you read, but I said it makes me want to uh, maybe want to write a, make a bumper sticker that says something like, you know, Incest, this is a southern thing you wouldn't understand. <laughs> Embrace it, I guess. Yeah, that's it's uh, yeah, some stere- <laughs> stereotyping and negative stereotyping uh, very much uh, out there. So what did you what did you finally settle on as, as a plausible condition that your that your great aunt might have had? Well, after going through a lot of, as you said, I did a lot of urological detective work. I read uh, the famous uh, book on urogenital disorders, by Hugh Young, who is actually a sort of character in the book, although he never shows up in person, but he's referred to. He was real, famous uh, urological surgeon, pioneer. Nothing in his book, which is some 800 pages long, seemed to fit uh, well. It seemed to what you know my aunt's problem was. It just didn't really add up, and um, and I didn't know. You know, I was I looked online, but I didn't know how. I mean, how do you look? How do you find out when you don't really know any details except that there's just one opening? There are a lot of conditions where there's just one opening. Um, I finally found this uh, condition called persistent cloaca, uh, in which um, and it, which happens only to women, and uh, it's very rare, uh, something like 1 in 20 to 25,000 births. So it's not... Um, that then it's not so surprising maybe that Hugh Young had, had not even seen you know anyone with this condition yet, had not studied it. This is because his book was 1940. And, um, but this condition is one in which she, the, the woman has all, uh, she has her urogenital system is intact, but it's sort of tucked up into her body. It's, it's, there's no external genitalia. There is the one at opening. But she has everything in there that any other woman has. There's just no access, and not only, and also it, everything empties into a common chamber before it is eliminated. And um, so uh, it's um, possible to keep that cleaned out um, if you're diligent and careful and live with it. There was. Um, it also turned out that there was no. Surgical. There was no uh, successful surgical repair of this condition until I think 1982. My aunt died in 1975. She never had any surgery of any kind mm-hmm. uh, to correct her. She could possibly have gone for a colostomy, I'm told, but chose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked. Those all of those things worked really uh, well in terms of what possibly.
possibly uh, was uh, going on with my aunt, and it worked very well for the story because Jane is is such a quote unquote normal person who happens to have this condition and who is limited uh, by this condition in a way that uh, because she is loves other people, including a boy, at one point it's um, it's a little bit it's it's, it's that much more moving, I think, to me, to think about it. Well, the, um, no, go ahead. Uh, I wonder if I could have you read a passage uh, from uh, from the book. Uh, this is uh, early on, uh, in fact, first first chapter, that you're describing uh, uh, Jane. Uh, this is page 15, over over the page. Mm-hmm. Just to set this up, sure. you're, you uh, long list of things that she did not fear. She was not afraid of snakes she was not a did not fear you know other things or just a couple of things that she was uh, afraid of gets us into the character of this thoroughly admirable person um miss yeah. it's it's kind of like it's, it's a kind of prologue although i don't call it that but and i suppose it was inspired by the fact that my great aunt from everything i've heard people who, who knew her and um had more experience with her um uh, they all said she. I mean, she seemed like a very formidable, you know, tough person as well as being cheerful and uh, would was undaunted <clears throat> by her by her condition. Um, and uh, was uh, I'll go back uh, before I go into that. I would say what I was going to say earlier was that uh, I did ask my mom at one point. Um, <clears throat> I said, "Are you sure that um, she was uh, was not intersexual?" You know, she, my mom was certain. She said, "No, no, she was she was female. Absolutely, we're we're certain." It was you know, now we know there are all kinds of there's all kind of gray area in there, but um, but uh, apparently there was not an intersexual condition going on. So that also fit with the uh, persistent cloaca, which is the name of the condition. Um, uh, anyway, this is the opening of the book. You would not think someone so afflicted would or could be cheerful, not prone to melancholy or the miseries. Early on, she acquired ways of dealing with her life, with life in general. And as she grew older, it became evident that she feared almost nothing, perhaps only horses and something she couldn't quite name, a strange presence of danger not quite really a part of the world. She didn't fear a fever of the kind that had taken her brother William at the age of three before she was born. To her mind, such a fate belonged to that child, not her. She wasn't afraid of snakes, not even the poisonous kind, for she believed they wouldn't bite her if she simply left them alone. Mosquitoes, for some reason of their own, did not bite her, although she took no precautions against them. She did not fear chickens because she found them to be comically sage, in spite of what people said about stupid chickens. The same with pigs, although their frequent, abrupt, chaotic, or oddly orchestrated and deafening panic at first frightened her, until she saw the comical in that. The panic was sudden in its arrival and departure both. Cows were so obviously a threat to no one, she did not threaten a mother's calf. The bull was safely penned in a separate pasture, she didn't fear the coyotes that sang at night in the open fields, nor the panthers that sometimes screamed far off deep in the woods. 
She loved to kneel at the open window and listen to the coyotes sing and imagine what they were singing to each other, what their singing meant to them. She didn't mind them tearing mice, rabbits, and squirrels to pieces, nor running down newborn fawns, nor the panthers sometimes taking a newborn calf. Her odd fear of an unnamed beast, something we might call mythical, came from having thought she once heard one grumbling near the house at night, and she was terrified then. She was not afraid of screeching owls in the night, nor the possibility of coming upon wild hogs during her walks in the woods, nor packs of wild dogs that sometimes roamed the pastures, and were to everyone more fearsome than the coyotes or panthers or bears, they're having no fear of man. She was not afraid of rabid coons or foxes, of her father's guns, being a 10-gauge shotgun and a Winchester rifle, nor the hatchet used to decapitate the chickens, nor the long knives used to butcher the hogs, nor the smaller knives used to skin and butcher the occasional deer, nor the saws used for sawing their bones, nor the large black kettle used to boil water for washing soil clothes and also for making soap in the yard that she was told to stay clear of when she was small. Nor was she afraid of hell, although the preachers on the circuit warned of it, but she was not afraid of eternal fire or demons and the devil himself. She could not properly conjure them in her mind without a comical air. Jane, who rarely even went to town as a child, could not imagine going to hell, her imagination being neither successfully cross-country nor subterranean. She was not afraid of cyclones in the darkest bio-green and black skies during storms that cracked off the limbs of oaks and the tops of pines and made the tin roof of the house and gallery pop and groan and bend upward at the edges nor of the hail that pocked the tin like buckshot raining down, nor of lightning the split trees that lengthened the smoldering charred skeletons rooted to the wet, scorched earth. She was not afraid of God with his sly and untrustworthy balance of love and wrath, who was yet curious enough to make himself vulnerable and walk among humans just like herself in the beautiful, harrowing embodiment of Jesus. She feared horses, because when they yanked their heads skyward and rolled her eyes, she imagined they knew better than her what there was to fear in the air, in the inescapable physical world. She did not fear mules, which her father explained were smarter than horses and predictable, and later she liked it when she learned they had no lineage. When she was small, she feared standing bodies of water, because for some reason she thought they were bottomless. But her father cured her of that by taking her fishing at the pond and coaxing her to wade in, cool off, feel the muddy earth safely there beneath the surface. Still, she would never learn to swim. Her mother was more of an, enig an enigma than a threat, tending to lash out, but seeming more angry at something inside herself than at others. Jane learned to weather the harsh and dark words, no more than a passing foul breeze in a world of variable winds, the variable intensities, the ephemeral has no real consequence in a life. She did not like the vexation of her incontinence and wished she would outgrow it, but eventually accepted it as part of who she was, no matter how unsavory. She determined that she would live like any other girl as best she could, and when she could no longer do that, she would adjust her life to its terms accordingly. So she did not fear her own strangeness, even though her awareness of it grew and evolved as she got older. In time, her gaunt, 
dark-haired, blue-eyed beauty would be altered and sharpened by age, a visible sign of her difference, her independence, and a silent message to all that her presence in the world was impenetrable beyond the point of her own determination. That's the uh, prologue of sorts to uh, the uh, the new novel, Miss Jane, by Brad Watson. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, more on uh, Brad Watson's uh, real-life great-aunt, uh, upon which this, uh, this novel is, is based, the uh, fictional character, Miss Jane uh, Chisholm. And uh, we'll talk more about a sense of place. Uh, Brad Watson uh, is from Mississippi, now lives in uh, Wyoming, and has, has written... Some uh, uh, some good things about Wyoming as well. We'll talk uh, about all of that following this break. Did you know that while enrollments in foreign language classes are dropping on college campuses nationwide, the number of college students who are learning American Sign Language is going up? A report from the Modern Language Association shows aggregate foreign language enrollments decreased by 6.7% from 2009 to 2013 in the United States. But American Sign Language enrollments went up 19% over the same four years. Students may be drawn to sign language because it is visual and because it satisfies a foreign language requirement. They may also want to communicate with a friend or a family member who is deaf or hard of hearing. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Rachel Giza, next time on Q, comedian and sometimes rapper Tom Green will join us to share a very special new song all about a unique American political figure that he first encountered on reality television. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we have with us uh, author Brad Watson. He's a native of Mississippi, now teaches at the University of Wyoming. He's the author of two collections of stories, uh, previously the novel The Heaven of Mercury, which was a finalist for the 2002 National Book Award. His new novel, Miss Jane, draws on the story of his own great aunt. He explores the life of Miss Jane Chisholm, born in rural early 20th century Mississippi with a genital birth defect that would stand in the way of the central quote-unquote uses for a woman in that time and place, namely sex and uh, marriage. Uh, many other fascinating characters uh, in this uh, book as well. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us toll-free at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. So the, the end of that passage that you read from the beginning of the book, uh, Brad Watson, uh, you talk about... Uh, a person, of course, uh, Miss Jane, any of us facing whatever we face in life have a choice, right? And so her world, you, you end with the sentence that the world was impenetrable beyond the point of her own determination. So Jane in the in the book, I suppose your great aunt as well, had, had choices to make uh, faced with uh, the trials they had. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really um, 
deepened my interest in Jane after I saw that photograph of her in which she appeared to be uh, looking flirtatiously back at whoever was taking the camera. I thought, well, was it possible that my great aunt, in spite of her condition or limitations but created by the condition, actually had a boyfriend? And if so, how did she handle that once she realized that she was not going to be able to... Um, continue it and consummate it once she faced up to that what kind of decisions did she face how did that affect her how did she then pull herself back together and determine to live the rest of her life um so you know pretty early on imagination began to merge with what little we knew about her and uh and 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 the the course of trying to shape this uh, character this, in, in the novel, who was uh, inspired by you know, what little I knew about my great aunt, but who became uh, her own person because we really knew so very little about my great aunt. They, they just didn't talk about it back then. They were they were, they were good country folks and uh, they were modest and they 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 were stoic and um, you didn't complain. And my Aunt Jane was a sort of exemplary figure in that bunch. <laughs> uh, the, she stood out, and everyone, hmm. you know, she stood out. She, right. She, uh, she, she did. A, she would travel by bus to see uh, relatives who were out of state, uh, siblings. She would uh, go see her other nieces and nephews in town. She loved being around children, um, but she lived a solitary life otherwise, as far as we can tell. The uh, title of the book, Miss Jane. Uh, so several different meanings, I'm sure. One that I, that I was thinking about in this time and place, uh, Mississippi, uh, early 20th century, Miss Jane in a certain uh, case, it's in a certain connotation, would be a failure, right? A, a woman who didn't do what uh, women were supposed to do, get married, have children. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And in fact, my from what my mom told me, my great aunt, uh, who was actually born earlier than the character in the book. My great aunt was born in 1888, my grandfather's older sister. Um, she, uh, from what I was told, she lived on the farm with her uh, parents until they died. And it was something like 40 years old before she uh, had to leave there and move into town by herself and apparently lived by herself. And when I asked a cousin of mine, an older cousin, I said, well, how do you think she survived? because they weren't wealthy farmers. Uh, they were, you know, hard scrabble. And uh, she said, well, I suppose she went on welfare. And I looked up welfare, and welfare began in 1935. So I said, well, yeah, that's a possibility. Maybe she did. If she, she swallowed her pride and did that because she had to. Uh, there was no other income. Um thought at some point my mom had said that she had worked as a seamstress that worked its way into the fictional character but I'm not certain that my great aunt actually did work as a seamstress and take in work you know something that she could do in the privacy of her home without having to deal with uh, the embarrassment of her incontinence in public you know so uh, but she was courageous enough uh, to travel by bus you know uh, all the way to East Texas to see her brothers there when she wanted to. She was undaunted, apparently. Uh, she just she just dealt with it. Hmm. Um, another detail I got among the few, uh, an older cousin, I remember her visiting them. <clears throat> they lived not far from where my great-aunt grew up, a little closer to town. 
and said that she would go out to the sandbox and play with the kids away from the adults. And she also remembered her locking herself in the bathroom, and she could hear her washing her undergarments in there. She refused to allow her clothing to be washed with the rest of the families. Um, and it was a mystery to the children who were told to hush up, you know, don't talk about that, leave Aunt Jane alone. Um, the, all of these things, you know, helped me try to imagine what a life, uh, uh, Jane Chisholm's life may have been like. But it was a slow process, and, and it was a, a lot of, there was a lot of trial and error, so, you know, trying to imagine this and that. <clears throat> Once I had settled on the condition of persistent cloaca, though, it, it began to be a little bit easier to figure it out. And, and once I began to write into the other characters who act as lenses through whom we can see, through which we can see uh, and understand a little bit more of Jane herself, um, the story began to come together a little better. The thing about persistent cloaca, from what I can tell, is that you, you are, you, you are uh, very much uh, feminine. You are very much uh, a woman. Uh, you have everything urogenitally that you're supposed to have, you know. <laughs> if you if you want to be fully a female, a woman, and yet there is no access to it. So that to me seemed like almost a, being sexually oppressed by your own body. Mm. Uh, and uh, that to me was a very fascinating you know, sort of situation for somebody that has to deal with in a, in a novel. So Jane, Miss Jane, is, is she's, she's isolated in a way by her condition, right? And she learns to, to be alone. Uh, her, her friend, uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, teaches her that, you know, that there are pleasures in, in being alone and also the ways you can have friendships as well. Uh, one uh, kind of interesting bit about this, that isolation, it in a way sets her free. Uh, from the the you know the what would have been, what where she would have been uh, kind of forced by culture, in terms of uh, of gender, uh, she's she's apart and so that's it's a bit freeing for. Her. Yeah, in the book, um, I you know, inspired by seeing that photograph where which suggested that she may have been sweet on somebody at some point, I, I gave her uh, a little bit of a teenage romance there from which she had to back away. Uh, because the doctor uh, says, you know, this probably won't work, and you have a decision to make here. Um, and she makes a decision to pull away from it so as not to uh, limit that boy's life. You know, if he was in love with her, at some point he might become disappointed in her inability to have children or even, uh, you know, sexual relations, and so she pulls back and lets him go. But the doctor later tells her, you know, uh, you had this love, whether you were able to consummate it or not, and that's something that's real and um, that you own, and actually it may be, you know, better than being trapped in a marriage that's perhaps not so perfect. As the doctor himself had a difficult marriage, and... Um, knows the sadness of that. That's trying to help her to see um, the better side of the way her life turned out. And it is a, a kind of freedom. You know, she's free to do exactly what she wants to do, to live her life the way she wants to live it. 
she has a late opportunity to date someone again, someone who doesn't really know that much about her but is very attracted to her, and she considers it, but then she changes her mind on that and says, no, that's, you know, I don't need that. Hmm. By that point in her life, she's decided she doesn't need it. Hmm. And her friendship with Dr. Thompson is just very sustaining for her. And then when he dies, because he's almost 40 years older than she is, she by that time she has learned quite well how to live alone and to um, not only survive, but to really kind of thrive in her own way and to have a measure of contentment if not happiness. I was, when I was thinking about reading the book and, uh, you know, thinking about this place, Meridian, uh, Meridian is your hometown, right? Uh, um, and I... And I was thinking about the, your your character Grace, Jane's older sister, in the book. Uh, she she I guess like a lot of young people, not just in the South, wanted to get out. She just had, oh, yeah. was a restless uh, soul. She finally did get into town. He got away from the farm. I was thinking about uh, Emmylou Harris's song uh, "Red Dirt Girl." Um, she hmm. in fact she mentions Meridian in in the lyric. Let's let's hear a little bit of this. Or just a bit of uh, Emily Harris's song, "A Red Dirt Girl." Uh, she talks about uh, writing this song that uh, she thought about people, um, you know, young people making their dreams, trying to get out. Uh, Grace, in your book, uh, she does make it to town, and in, I guess in that way, maybe not her wildest dreams, but she does get off the farm. Yeah, she does. She 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 gets the independence she wanted. Gets away from the confining rural life, which she found suffocating. And by the way, that's one of my favorite Emily Harris songs. <laughs> I'm so glad she played it. If I had remembered it when I was putting epigraphs in the book, I probably would have put something in there from that. 
Um, yeah, Grace is uh, described by the doctor um, uh, as uh, seeming like a, a wildcat tethered to that family by some piece of rope. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, she uh, she gets away as soon as she can. She does it, and, uh, you know, um, uh, a fairly devious way by you know, tricking a boy into thinking he's made her pregnant and getting money from him, goes in. Gets married, gets jilted by that guy, and is left alone with the house and business when he runs off, and that's perfectly fine with her. You know, she's mm-hmm. you know she got what she wanted, and and luckily enough for her, the husband got the hell out of the way, and <laughs> that was perfect for Grace. So mm-hmm. She's 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 one of my. There, I love all of these these characters in the book are all really interesting to me, and I, I really enjoyed writing them. Uh, Grace, of course, was a, a lot of fun to write about. The Doctor was somehow moving for me mm-hmm. to write about, as were as were the the parents. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And they, you know, really, it was. I was having a little bit of trouble uh, figuring out how to find the voice for uh, Jane's interior life. You know, to her mind, the way she thought, the way the way her, um, you know, to get inside her head, and and. So I veered off and I began to write uh, about the, the father and the mother uh, in that way and Grace to some extent. Um, and that actually helped open up um, uh, the mind of Jane to me because these are people who care so deeply about her but also have a very hard time expressing their emotions. And so it's often silently expressed within themselves. But it sort of, oddly enough, gave me a kind of gateway or access to the Jane that I've been having a hard time finding. Let's take another break. When we come back more with uh, Brad Watson, uh, his new novel is called Miss Jane, and it's uh, based on uh, a real life person, uh, Brad Watson's great aunt uh, Jane. Um, we'll talk about a little bit more about the book. I want to get into uh, place and uh, compare and contrast Meridian, Mississippi, with Laramie, Wyoming. Um, and to get a little bit of Brad Watson's biography, uh, I found it fascinating, Brad Watson. You you were going to be an actor. You ended up a Hollywood garbage man. That's, uh, that's how it happens sometimes. We'll talk about that when we come back. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Deli, 52 Federal Avenue in downtown Logan. Featuring a vegan falafel wrap with spring greens, artichoke hearts, roasted red peppers, and finished with a tahini vinaigrette. Information at CafeIbis.com. Comedians are having a ball, I'll tell you what, with this election cycle. The material is writing itself, which is a huge benefit because you can lay off your writing staff, they can collect unemployment for a while. You know, and you say, the material's writing itself. We don't need you for a while. I'm Kai Rizdal, Larry Wilmore, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Brad Watson. Uh, he is... Uh, Associate Professor of Creative Writing at uh, University of Wyoming. He's a native of Mississippi. That's where this uh, latest book is uh, set. His new novel is called Miss Jane, set in the early 20th century in uh, Mississippi. And uh, he will be at the King's English Bookshop tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock for a reading and signing, uh, free and open to the public. King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City 
uh, tomorrow evening, 7 p.m. for uh, Brad Watson. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Brad Watson, your first novel, The Heaven of Mercury, um, also takes place in the Mississippi during the early 20th century. What, what is it about that time and place you find so compelling? Well, um, but when I, I, I think it's, it's for one thing, it's changed uh, uh, a great deal uh, since uh, I was a child. I think you had, the, you know, the sort of. I, I think I grew up in the end of an era uh, when, during the transition from what was still a small town, small city, largely rural um, place, the deep south to uh, one now that's um, becoming much more heavily populated. Um, it's, uh, you know, the interstates are as crowded as they are anywhere else in the country. Uh, the cities are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, urbanization is really uh, what's happening. Uh, no more small farms <clears throat> like my grandfather's cattle farm. You just really don't see much of that anymore. And so... Um, it's uh, you know there's a, there's a bit of um, uh, I suppose uh, not nostalgia uh, for that because it wasn't a perfect time absolutely we know that but but um, but I do have a, a kind of an elegiac uh, relationship with it I mean this is this is a lost time and, and that's partly because it's of course my childhood and um, and I've uh, I had to leave that town in order to uh, to make a living and survive. I wasn't able, I wasn't one of those who was able to stay around and, and make a living. And so, um, so it's, some, and we grew up in a place where, a street where uh, we had a lot of freedom. Uh, dogs were not leashed, neither were children. And there were woods nearby that we roamed into freely without anybody really worrying about it. And those woods show up a lot in uh, my work. They show up in the habit of mercury as a, as a, as a serving a different function as a sort of a community of uh, people who had been exiled to that place that had kind of ran away to it. And then um, in Miss Jane, it's, or it's, I use that as the model for the doctor's woods that she owns. Um, it, it, those kind of things, you know, sort of feed, fill the well, I think, the imaginative well you can draw from. I mean, you put this easy for me to put my, my head, my imagination back into those places and, and to feel as if I'm there when I'm writing, and that's important to making it seem real on the page, I think. You uh, you said in an interview, speaking about this, uh, quoting you, when you have lived in that kind of involuntary moral limbo, and that is associated so strongly with a place, how can you not have it always in mind? You're, are you talking about race there? I think I was when I was talking about that, yes. I mean, um, it's... Um, I grew up during the civil rights era and uh, was in school when the schools were finally desegregated and the Supreme Court finally forced Mississippi schools to desegregate. Uh, they were so resistant that they had to do it in the middle of the year, and it was a really botched operation. Um, and I, you know, my parents were very much moderates, uh, what they called moderates on race, and they believed in being polite and treating people like human beings, and we were always instructed to, to do that. And and yet you saw that there's still there was still all these uh, really um, 
ridiculous and horrible conditions. I mean, when I was small, there were still segregated bathrooms and water fountains and things like that. Um, there was no, there were no, there were very few employment opportunities for black people when I was a little kid and growing up. And um, and I was a, I was an observant kid, you know, for the sensitive kid, and I saw this. And, um, and there was nothing you could do as a, as a, as a child that you could, that you saw and you understood. Uh, that these people were having a rough time, uh, and that you lived in a system, and you were basically a part of it. You, know, you were, you know, you were, you were, you were culpable, whether you were a child or not, and that's something that settles into you that, that you don't forget. You're you're now in Wyoming, of course, so teaching Laramie. Um, been there about ten years, right? You've 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 said Wyoming is like a state covered in one of those mythical invisibility suits. You have friends who ask you, "How is it out there in Montana?" Right. I got that call a lot when I first moved out. How's Montana? <laughs> well, not in Montana. How's Colorado? Not there either. <laughs> then Wyoming. Oh, where is that? Well, it's between Montana and Colorado. It's kind of like a black hole. And people, uh, of course, would think now with, with stuff like, you know, the Longmire you know, books and, and uh, HBO series or whatever network he's on, uh, people are becoming more aware of it. But, um, but uh when I went out there 11 years ago, I, I think pretty much, no, even I wasn't sure where I was when I was going mm-hmm. out there to interview for that job. <laughs> it's, um, people, I joked in an essay for Grana that, um, you know, even people who fly into uh, Jackson, in Jackson Hole, you know, they step off, they, they've already forgotten they're going to Wyoming, they think they're in northeastern Colorado. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, there are only 600,000 people in a state that's 600,000 square miles. So it's probably the least populated state of the lower 48. And it's, uh, I, I like um, sparsely populated areas. I do like that. But then again, sometimes you you feel kind of an aching need for more diversity. Mm. That's just not there yet. Do you... Do you consider yourself still a Southern writer? Will you always um, consider yourself a Southern writer? Well, and so I take so long to get something right, Tom. You know, I just you know, it's got, I, I don't let it go until it's, it's it's close to being exactly like I want it to be, as I can possibly make it. And and I take my time. And I don't see any need for me to write a book every year or every two years, if you know, just for the sake of doing that. I just don't. There, there's so many books out there, and you know, people don't. I don't. I don't see the need. So I have a kind of a backlog, you know, of stories that are uh, southern, that are set down there that, that I'm still interested in. And so I haven't really quite turned my, my fictional mind toward uh, Wyoming yet. So I'm kind of living, I'm living in Wyoming. My mind is often elsewhere, and that's usually down south in Mississippi or Alabama. Mm. Uh, I want to hear Mike, about. I'd love to get around. There's some stories. Per- There's some Western stories percolating, but uh, okay. whether I'll have time to get to them or not, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I want to hear this. Uh, have you tell the story? You uh, you went off to Hollywood to to become an actor, and uh, became a, a garbage man. That's right. I I uh, ran off with my sweetheart who was pregnant when uh, in the summer between my. Um, junior and senior years in high school and uh, started supporting our, our, us at that point. Uh, my, they would they let me out of school at noon. I'd work construction. Um, 
uh, from 12 o'clock to 5 or 8, depending on how, late, how long the light would last. And, uh, and I had been doing a lot of local theater ever since ninth grade. Uh, speaking of race, uh, in the ninth grade, my, uh, we, there was a remarkable woman who was teaching there and decided to put on a biracial production of the musical Oliver, defying everybody in the administration who didn't want her to do it. And uh, it was about the most harmonious thing that happened between the races in that year in my junior high school. Um, so that got me started uh, in my interest in theater. I had been a football player and everything, but I had stopped growing. So there wasn't there was no future in, in being a jock. And I really loved the, the theater work, and I, I had kept doing it. And so my father, one day when I was working on a foundation ditch on Saturday on the construction site, came out and announced to me, that he and uh, my uncle had um, made a connection for me in Hollywood that, that you know, I'd kind of screwed up so I should just go for broke and go out there and try to, try to do it. They were going to give me a job in the studios, maybe building sets because I had carpentry experience. And um, I said, well, sure, you know, I'll go. So I went out, um, and uh, as soon as I got there, uh, about the same time I got there, there there was a writer's strike, writer's union strike. And at that time, it was still the studio system. And it basically shut the movie business down. And uh, my contacts, my uncle's employer, said, uh, you should go home, son. You know, you got a wife and a child back there. And I said, I, just, I came all the way out here. I'm not going to go home yet. I'm going to give it a go. And I'm going to try. And I said, well, only suit yourself. It took me a couple of three months to get a job. Working, I worked briefly as a truck tire changer. I sold fire alarms for a while, which was basically scaring little old ladies and about you know the possibility of burning to death. I couldn't stand that. Tried to sell pictures. Ended up being stranded in Richard Nixon's hometown because I couldn't stand doing that and just left the group. Um, did some carpentry or construction labor work, and finally, um, <clears throat> friend, the guy I met out there said, hey, I got a friend who works on one of these garbage trucks, you know. Um, it was privatized then, of course, in Los Angeles. And uh, he said, he just rides on the back of the truck and pops off and on the forks and gets back on. He said, it's great. It's easy. He loves it. So I tried, but I couldn't get hired by any of the larger companies because they were unionized, and I was a 17-year-old kid, no union. And I found this, but someone pointed me to this one guy named Zarko Demirjian, an Armenian uh, man who'd, who had um, escaped from Armenia when it was still part of the Soviet Union, come over and started his own garbage business. He had one truck, and uh, he flew under the Union radar, so he was willing to take me on. And I had to drive the truck, and I was also the helper. Yeah, there was no helper. I'd drive the truck, stop it, get out, go get the bin, put it on the forks, dump it, get in the truck, go to the next stop. And he had usually the more difficult stops that the big union companies charged more for, and he would charge a regular rate. So I was doing a lot more running and a lot more hauling from the backs behind buildings and down in parking garages and that sort of thing. I must have lost 20 or 25 pounds. <laughs> but uh, I actually loved the job, uh, you know, the, the solitude of it. gave made, made for a lot of uh, good sort of, mulling things over and daydreaming and figuring out what I was really going to do uh, since uh, the acting thing wasn't working out. And, um, of course, that led also to my daydreaming led to quite a few uh, uh, accidents. 
in the truck. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I was constantly running into something, crunching something, you know, hitting the rear end of another car or whatever. Yeah. It, was just, it was a kind of a comical. Well, in in the end, you've you've found your true calling. Uh, so we're we're out of time here. Yeah. We have to leave it there. Uh, Miss Jane is the latest uh, novel, uh, fascinating. Uh, Brad Watson has uh, been my guest. He uh, is author, award winning author, and uh, teaches creative writing at University of Wyoming in in Laramie. Uh, his website, you can check that out, is WiltonBradWatson.com. And uh, should mention that he'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock if you'd uh, like to meet him. Brad Watson, thank you so much. You're welcome, Tom, and thank you. Uh, coming up on Monday, we are going to uh, reach back in the archives and revisit a, a, a fun conversation with Winston Groom about his book, The Generals. It tells the intertwined and uniquely American tales of George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall. We'll spend some time talking about Forrest Gump as well. Winston Groom is the author of uh, Forrest Gump. That's our program on Monday. Hope you join us then. Thanks. It's not every orchestral concert that gets covered by news outlets around the world, but this was the first American orchestra to play in Cuba since the restoration of diplomatic ties with the U.S. The Minnesota Orchestra in concert in Havana on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.